Take your Bibles and turn to Judges chapter 6. Judges chapter 6. I appreciate your singing this morning as we prepare our hearts for the, the Word of God. If you're visiting with us this morning or it's, uh, you've not been here in a little while, we've been going through a study of the book of Judges, and not specifically the book of Judges, but going through a study of the Judges and talking about these men. And we're doing that because uh, history often repeats itself. And for, these, uh, the, for the people of Israel at this time, that was the problem. It kept repeating itself over and over and over again. And this year as a church, as we celebrate our 150th anniversary, our desire is that we look back to the past and see all the good things that God had done for us and also to learn from the lessons of the past in areas that we need to learn. And so we're looking through these judges to remind ourselves of, of what God has done and how we can learn. As we go through this study of judges, there are two obvious lessons that pop off the pages of Scripture over and over again. Number one, sin has consequences. Sin always has consequences. We see that throughout the book of Judges that, that there is results of our sin and there is uh, punishments of our sin. But secondly, we see over and over again in the book of Judges that God can use anyone to do His will. And this morning, we're going to look at a man uh, that God used in a great way, a man by the name of Gideon. Now, what do you think of when you think, hear the name Gideon? Think about that for a moment in your head. What comes to your mind? Many of you will think of trumpets, won't you? You'll think of a, 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 what we're going to talk about next week, the trumpets blowing and, and the victory that was, was obtained because of that. Some of you think of men you know, going down and getting a drink of water. Some of you think of a fleece. Those are all uh, aspects of the story of Gideon that are well known. And if you've been in church for much of your life, you've heard that. If you've been here since, in church since you were a child, you heard that many times in Sunday school. Some of you, when you think of the word Gideon, you think of when you go into a hotel room and you see a Bible in the nightstand, right? Someone once said this, Who's this Gideon guy? He must be really forgetful because he leaves his Bible everywhere he goes. Some of you maybe think of the organization that places those Bible. organization called Gideon's International, and they distribute uh, Bibles uh, all over the world, and some of you in our church, we have a number in our church that are part of that, so maybe when I said Gideon, that's what you thought of. Gideon's or, or, uh, International excuse me, is an organization that places Bibles in hotels and, and distributes to schools and colleges throughout our country and throughout the world. Why did they pick that name? I was wondering that myself, I've been wondering that before, and so I did a little research and found out that the Gideon, uh, and probably some of you that are part of the Gideons could come up and share this, but the Gideon organization began in 1898 by three men, and two of them got together, and then they added a third one that got together and decided, we want to distribute the Bible. And so they began this organization called Gideon's International. And, and the reason they called themselves Gideon's is, is this, and this was a statement that was put out, it says this, Gideon was a man who was willing to do exactly what God wanted him to do, regardless of his own judgment as to the plans or results. Humility, faith, obedience were his greatest elements of character. 
This is the standard that Gideon's International is trying to establish in all of its members. Each man to be ready to do God's will at any time, at any place, in any way that the Spirit leads. I think that's a good description of many who are a part of that organization, but I also think it's a good description of Gideon. Gideon was a man who obeyed. But that's not the whole story. And I want to take some time this morning and talk about, and actually we're going to talk about Gideon the next two weeks. And I want to talk about this man, Gideon. Let's begin with a word of prayer. God, as we look into this story of this man, Gideon, that you chose, you chose because you saw something in him that he didn't even see in himself. Lord, I pray that you help us to understand what lessons we can learn from this this individual's life. Lord, we're thankful for it. We ask this in your name. Amen. When we look at Judges chapter 6, I'm going to look at how God interacted with Gideon and then, and then how God desires to interact with us. And we have five points I want you to notice. The first one is God sometimes uses difficult times to get our attention. If you will, look at Judges chapter 6, and, and I'm going to read most of Judges chapter 6, but not all at once. We're going to go, kind of come at it uh, piece by piece. In Judges chapter 6, follow along as I read verses 1 through 6. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, <clears throat> and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Malachites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or oxen or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents and they would come like locusts in number, both they and their camels, could not be counted, so that they laid waste, laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. As we come to Judges chapter 6, we find the nation of Israel coming off a time of relative peace. If you read the very last phrase in chapter 5, it says the land had rest for 40 years. <clears throat> they had 40 years of prosperity, 40 years of success, but as it tends to happen to us, as, as it did in the nation of Israel, Israel forgot God. Israel forgot who God was, and he had forgotten what God had done. They had become self-sufficient. They had come to the point that they didn't need God. And I think many times we find the same thing true of ourselves, is we're, we're doing well, and everything's going well, and so we think, I, I'm okay. And God says, you need me. And so the Lord did, as He had done numerous times and will do numerous times after this, He brought up an enemy against them. Verse 1 says that they were doing evil in the sight of the Lord and because of that brought up the people of Midian for seven years. And this people of Midian were extremely powerful and oppressed Israel very horribly. If you read the passage, we get the idea that every year around harvest time, 
the, the Midianites would come in. The Midianites were a nomadic tribe. They would travel around from place to place. And so it's probably uh, assumable that they were going in and they were, they were causing pain to other nations as well. But they would travel in to Israel during harvest time and they would, they would completely destroy everything. If you look at verse 4, it says they would take everything that they possibly could from the Israelites. In fact, it says they came in so much that it was like locusts. Now, we don't understand that as much in today in our, uh, in our um, life, but if you are a farmer, you may have understood locusts coming in and destroying your crop. And that's the idea, is they would come in so fast and so furious, it was like their crop never even existed. The Bible reports that it was so bad, if you look at verse 2, that the, the people of Israel would go and they would make homes in the caves and the strongholds, and they would make a place for, uh, th- that they hid. And this went on for seven years. I think a lot of times that when we read a passage in Scripture that talks about a length of time, we kind of just brush over it because we read it in one phrase. You know what I mean? But think about how long seven years is. Some of you in here who are teenagers, you know, seven years ago you were a, a little kid. Some of you in here who are 90, seven years ago doesn't seem like that long ago. But seven years is a long time, And the question that I have to ask is, why did it take so long? But I think that if we all are honest, we understand that. But finally, the Israelites come to the place where they realize we need help. And so they cry out to God as they had many times before. And they cry out, God, we need help. We have tried every possible avenue up to this point. We had tried to stand for ourselves. That didn't work. We, we, there's nothing else we can do, and we can no longer take it, and so we need your help. In verse 6, it actually said they, be, they were brought very low. And, you know, in terminology today, we would say they were very depressed. They were, they were moping around. They have no reason to continue on. They don't know what to do. They're, they're distraught. They're hurting. They're aching. And they say, God, we need you. They come to God begging for help. I think a lot of times in life, I heard someone once say this, they said, distress teaches prayer. We come to a point of distress and we have nothing else we can do but cry out to God, and that's what they did. But how many times in your life has hard circumstances come and we don't often stop to ask God what He's doing in those circumstances. Instead, we think that we can handle it on our own. We think we can do our own thing. We think that if we can't handle our own, then we're just going to quit. Now, I've seen that happen to way too many Christians who circumstances get hard and they quit. And that's here what we see that began happening to the people, but they cried out to God. And they cried out uh, for everything they could because every trial that God brings to us is tailor-made to draw us closer to Him. Every trial that God brings to us is, is designed by God to bring us closer to who Jesus Christ is. And here's the point. is When tough times come, uh, we need to see them as God's gift of grace. Because God has brought them in our lives to draw us back to Him. And God tells us throughout His Word that He deals with us like a rebellious child, but He does it out of love. Like it says in Proverbs, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and be weary of His reproof, for the Lord reproves whom he, uh, Him whom He loves as a father and a son in whom He delights. Those of you who are parents here, you understand that, that aspect of disciplining your child out of love. 
You know, when you were a kid, how many, of, how many of you had your parents say to you, this hurts me more than it hurts you? Anyone ever have that? Okay. Now, here's a question. How many of you have used that with your kids? Okay. We understand that idea, but here, what it's saying in this passage and what we see throughout Scripture and what, Jesus, or what God is doing here with the nation of Israel is He's being a loving Heavenly Father and He's saying, you know what, you are living in sin and I cannot allow that. I cannot let that take place. I love you way too much to let you go on this way. So I have to discipline you because I love you. He loves you too much to let you live that way. He longs to be the center of your life. He has designed our troubles. He has designed our circumstances when they are bad and has designed them that way always for our good. And sometimes it hurts. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience, but He shouts in our pain. Pain is His megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And God does that for us. And I believe that many times God wants us, and I, I've heard a couple people actually say this to me recently, talking about a loved one, they, say, they said this, they said, I, I don't want them to get there, but if it takes for them to get to rock bottom, then I'm okay with that if they turn to God. And I think that's what God did to the nation of Israel. He let them get to rock bottom so that He could get their attention so that they would turn back to Him. And my prayer for you is that you don't allow God uh, to let you get to rock bottom. That you look and say, you know what, I need to make some changes in my life now. Is God getting your attention? God was trying to get the nation of Israel's attention, but the second thing I want you to notice is that God sees and knows more than we do. Notice, if you will, Judges chapter 6 as we continue reading. Look at, if you will, verse 7. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave them into gave them, gave you their land, excuse me, and I said to you, I am the Lord your God, you shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. The wonderful thing about God is that even though we are slow in returning to him, he is never slow in responding to us. Notice, if you will, the immediacy of God's response. It says in that passage, now for seven years they've been turning their back on God. For seven years they've been worshiping wrong idols. And, and for seven years God has allowed affliction to them. And they come and they say, God, we need your help. And notice what it says. And immediately it says, and when God, when the people cried out, God heard them and he did something about it. Because the immediacy of God's response, he didn't wait until they deserved it. That's what we do sometimes. He didn't wait until they had got good enough for his help. He responded right away. And verse 7 and 8 shows that they cry out to God and God immediately moves in mercy and love just like he does with us. And he tells us the truth and he begins to work behind the scenes to help us. With the people of Israel, notice what he says. First of all, he sends a prophet. The Bible doesn't tell us who. In verse 8 it says a prophet, a 
I, I like to refer him to him as the unnamed prophet, and to bring them back to God, and to bring them back to surrender, and to bring them back to devotion, and he reminds them of what God has done. If you notice in that passage, what does he say? He says, he says haven't I delivered you? And God takes a moment to remind them of all he had done. He says, I delivered you from the people of Egypt. And I brought you into this land, and I told you not to fear these people because these people got nothing on me. And all I ask is that you don't follow their gods. And notice what he says, and you haven't obeyed my voice. Then God begins to work in the story, and God calls a man, a most unlikely man. Let's read about him. Let's look at verse 11. It says, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree at Ophrah, which belongs to Joash the Abazarite, whose, uh, while his son Gideon was beating out the wheat in the winepress to hide from the Midianites, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. The details here are interesting, and we could get into a lot of them, but I just wanted you to look at them a little bit. The, the little details where he, we see here really explain how distressed the situation was. What does it tell us about this guy Gideon? It tells us that he was, uh, he was working the wine press. What, what was he doing? He was beating out the wheat. Now, why is that significant? A, a wine press would have been a, a small little area with a, with a covering, why was he doing that? He was hiding. That's not the normal way that they, would have, uh, that they would have beat the wheat. Normally, what would have happened is they would have done it in open area. Why would they have done it in open area? Because as they would, as they would beat on the wheat, the, the chaff, the unnecessary stuff, the stuff that's not used, would have blown away in the wind. And so they needed that wind there, and they needed the open space, but also they would have done it in a place, we'll see later on it talks about this, they would have done it on a threshing floor. A threshing floor would have been a, a wood uh, platform that would have been there, and, and they would use this wood platform. Why? Because usually what would happen is the cattle, the, the animals would come, and the animals would, uh, would trample the wheat. And so w- by doing that, the noise would have been created, would have been quite loud. And so we see that here is Gideon, and because of this fear, he's doing it by himself under a, a sheltered area so no one can see him or hear him. Why is he doing that? Because he is, it's actually kind of a pitiful sight. He's full of frustration, discouragement, fear. He's terrified. He's living in complete and utter horror, waiting for what's going to happen. And so when we come to this passage and we see verse 12, understanding that scenario, we look at verse 12 and it says, The angel Lord appeared to him and said to them, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Now, I mean, you know, no disrespect by saying this, but I want to imagine that scene, if you will. Here's Gideon, terrified. He's hiding in a wine press, and he's, he's slowly beating at the wheat, trying to do his job, and what, what would have taken far less time if he would have done it the normal way, but he was scared to do that. So here he is beating, and all of a sudden he looks over, and there's this man, and he goes over, and this man comes up to him and says to him, you mighty man of valor. I can imagine for a moment that Gideon stopped and looked around to see who he was actually talking to. Because he realized he wasn't talking to him. And I, or maybe he thought for a moment, is this man being sarcastic? Is this man mocking me? Is this man uh, criticizing me? But I believe what happened here is God saw something Gideon didn't. 
And God saw what he was about to make of Gideon, and it was time for Gideon to see the same thing. And I think the same thing is true with us, is how often do we have a different view of ourselves than God does? Now, there are some of you in here, and I would say it's the rare few who are that that ultra-confident type. You know who you are, okay? You got it all figured out. You've got it all together. You have no... You know, you never think bad of yourself. You never think you have any weakness. You're there. But I would say majority of you in here this morning, you're feeling Gideon. And some of you even, uh, you come across as, as this powerful guy, but you're really Gideon. You lack confidence, and you say in yourself, I, I, can't, I can't do anything. And, and one of the biggest lies I believe that we tell ourselves is that God only uses special people. One of the biggest lies we tell ourselves is God can never use me because I'm not good enough. One of the biggest lies we tell ourselves over and over again is God uh, never could possibly use someone as weak as me. But if you're a believer here today, the Bible says that you're not that. If you're a believer here today, the Bible says you are His child, you are His friend, you are His masterpiece. If you're a believer here, there's so many incredible words, and I just want to take you a real quick view through some verses in Scripture that tell you who you are if you're a believer here. First of all, in Romans 5.1, it says, Therefore, since we have been justified, therefore, since we have been saved, what does it say? We have peace with God. And so we stand here as, as, as beings completely at peace with God. Do you not understand how incredible that is? Because, because if you are not at peace with God, the wrath of God is a scary thing. But God says, if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you have peace with God. And then he goes on and he says this in, in, in Romans 8.1, Therefore, now, there is therefore now no condemnation. I stand, and I can stand before the judge of heaven, and there is not one thing that can be brought on my charge that I am guilty of because of what Jesus Christ has done. You say, well, I don't understand that, Pastor B. You are not, definitely not a perfect person. I know that. I am not a perfect person. But I stand, and it's not because I stand there and go, yeah, look at my righteousness. I stand before the God of heaven, and, I look, and, and God looks at me, and what does He see? He sees the righteousness of Christ in me. And he looks and he says, not guilty. And there's no, no matter what I do, no matter the good I do or the bad I do, I stand before God, not guilty. That is empowering. It goes on, and we see in another passage, and, and I love this one, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5, he says this, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. And why do I love this one? I love this one because it's not just that God says, okay, you're at peace with me. That's enough. We could say, okay, I'm at peace with God, and we wander away, and we don't have conversations again. No, it goes beyond that. It's not just that we're not condemned. He says this. He looks down, and he says, I want to take you into my arms and love you like my own Son. And I, as, as you all know, I, I, my kids uh, are adopted. And, and when I was able to look at both of them that first time and say, these are my kids, there's that, there's that wonderful feeling that nothing was going to take that away. I've had people in, in foolishness come to me before and say, you know, when are you going to have real kids? And I look at my kids, and I love them to death, and they know that. And they know that, that 
that I will do whatever I possibly can. And here in this passage, it says God loves us so much that He adopted us into His family. How empowering is that? Philippians tells us this in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, it says, but our citizenship is in heaven. It goes beyond that. It's not, it's not just that we aren't condemned. It's not just that we're at peace with God. It's not just that He's brought us into our family. But then He tells us, and what does Jesus say to His disciples? I go and I prepare a place for you. And I'm going to make this place for you. And then when I come, I'm going to bring you to heaven. Because this, is, this world, this crummy, sinful, wicked world is not your home. Heaven is. And I've got a mansion. You know what? And it's not about the mansion. I could have a shack in heaven and I'd be happy. It's about the fact that we're in the presence with God and that is our home. And in this passage, he says, you are citizens of heaven. But then in Romans chapter 8, and verse 35, he says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ so tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And we know that the answer to that is nothing. So it's not just that we're not condemned. It's not just that we're His Son. It's not just that uh, we have a home in heaven. But He says this, He says, nothing you do, nothing that happens will separate you from the love of God. Isn't that empowering? And then in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10, He says this, For you are My workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. And this is where it really gets tough for some of us. Because we're glad we're at peace with God. We're glad that we're not condemned. We're glad that He calls us sons. We're glad we have a home in heaven. We're glad that nothing separates us from the love of Christ. But here in this passage, what it says this is then, then go out and be my workman. Because I have designed you. I have created you. I have orchestrated everything in your life so you will serve exactly how I have asked you to serve. And see, when we look at Gideon, Gideon sat there and, and the, the angel looks at him and says, Oh, mighty man of valor. And Gideon goes, Not me. I can't do this. But the problem is, many Christians, God looks at you and says, You are my workman. And you go, Mm-mm. Nope. That's, you know, Pastor Pete's job. Or greater than that, that's Pastor Nate's job. That's not me. And God says, no, that's not true. I have done all of these things we just talked about so that you will be my workman. He has planned you and He has orchestrated you with the identity that He wants you to have so you can serve Him in a way that only you can do. And God begins to tell Gideon that you, Gideon, you are more than that. And so, third thing, God confirms his plan with his presence. God just doesn't leave him there. And first thing I want you to notice before we go in any deeper in this passage, it's talking over and over about the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord in this passage is a reference to the Son of God in human form. Some people call it a prelude to Jesus. I, I believe it's Jesus. Uh, if you look at verse uh, 14, just quickly there, it says, in the ESV it says, and the Lord, and, and it uses the word because the uh, capital letters. Okay, this is uh, the idea there that this is Jehovah Himself. This angel here is, is God coming down to earth. 
So you've got to understand that as you look at this, that, that God was the one speaking to Gideon. But look at what Gideon's response is. After being called a, a mighty man of valor, after, after God looked at him and said, you, you mighty warrior, what was Gideon's response? Look at, if you will, verse 13. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. God looks at him and says, You mighty man of valor. And he looks back and he says, If I'm really a mighty man of of valor, then why did God do all this for us or to us? Why did God leave us and why did God abandon us? And why did uh, God leave us here to die? I love the response here because I think our, my earthly response would have been to snap back, but God didn't do that. I really love this interaction between Gideon and God because you see, we see the long-suffering, the, the patience of God throughout. What was the response in verse 14? And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of many. Do not I send you. He says in that passage, he says to him, uh, you know, because this must have shocked Gideon. Gideon is sitting there and he's saying, you know, you call me a mighty man of valor and that God is with me, but where is God? And God turns and looks at him, and the Lord turns and looks at him and says, uh, with his eye-to-eye contact, he says, go in the strength that you have and defeat Midian. Isn't it I who am sending you? You know what? Gideon's still not doing the math right. Gideon still left out the divine equation out of the problem, and because of that, he he responds wrong again. Look at verse 15, and he turns back and he says in verse 15, and he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. He turns to to God, and he notes to God, he says, you know what? God, my resume is pretty unimpressive. You know, and I think that oftentimes we struggle with that, don't we? Say, God, you don't know how unimpressive my resume is. I don't have a track record like others. I, I didn't go to Bible college. I didn't even go to college. I didn't even finish high school. We, we throw those things at God. God, I, I, I can't speak in front of people. I don't have that ability. God, I, I don't know how to share your word. And we make excuses over and over again of the, uh, the, the lack of strength in our resume, our spiritual resume. And, and God says, that's not true. Am I not the one going with you? Am I not the one that's going alongside of you. And then God confirms with Gideon his, his desire to be present. If you will, look at verse 16. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. Gideon here is given an 
undeniable commission, and he's told of, an, uh, of, of, a, of a remarkable result in advance. God says to him, you are going to go, and I'm telling you right now, not that you're going to go and fight Midian, not that you're going to go and you're going to do your best. He said, I'm telling you right now, you are going to win as if you're the only one there. And you are going to go, and then he tells him that you will have my undivided attention. And he says in that passage, I will be with you. And here's the thing is when we go out and serve God, we sometimes we go out and we, we, you know, we go and we go talk to our neighbor about Jesus Christ and we say, I'm terrified to go talk to my neighbor about Jesus Christ. And what God is telling us is, guess what? I'm with you the whole way. I'm right with you. And he tells us that we go and we do these things. And then we see what happens next in, in verses uh, seven through, uh, excuse me, 17 through 24. Then uh, uh, Gideon begins to lay out kind of a beginning process of a test for God. If you notice, if you will, in that passage, look at verse 17. And he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak to, with me. Please do not depart from here until I have come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. So Gideon went in the house and prepared a young goat, an unleavened cake from the uh, ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot and he brought them to him under the cherubim. Here's an interesting note, okay? Again, that I believe reveals Gideon's fear. Okay, so they've been meeting, meeting under this uh, tree, and, and, and he says to, to the angel of the Lord, he says to the Lord, he says, okay, I, I want a sign that you are who you say you are, so I'm going to bring you a present. And so he walks inside. Now, most of you are pretty hospitable people. If I you know, came to your house, now some of you would kick me out, but if I came to your house, most of you would, would invite me in. Now, if I came to your house and we're outside talking and we're, we're having a good old time outside and it, it gets to a certain point, it's dinner time and, and we're both hungry and, and, you know, and you look at me and say, now hang here for a second, I'm going to go inside and, bring you a, and get you a present. And, and, you, and you, know, you were to walk inside and you were, I mean, look what he made. The Bible tells us he made a goat. That doesn't sound like a quick process. Okay, he made bread. He made a broth. And the whole time, the angel of the Lord's sitting outside. Why did he leave him sitting outside? I believe because he was still a little afraid. I think he was a little afraid if he brought him into the house that now he'd have to meet mom and dad and he'd have to meet brothers and sisters and they might be like, who is this guy? Why is he here? And so Gideon does this, and he comes out and he says, uh, brings this meat, and, and what takes place with this meat? If you will, look. Verse 20, the angel of the Lord said to him, take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. And the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand, and he touched the meat and the unleavened cakes and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cake and the angel lord vanished from his sight what happens it's an amazing thing and they looks down and immediately they are burnt to a crisp the bible says the angel lord departs and notice gideon's response if you will in verse 22 then gideon perceived that he was the angel lord 
That's the first moment, glimpse that we get that Gideon really understood who he was talking to. And then notice Gideon's response, and he says, Alas, O Lord, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. The phrase there, alas, O Lord God, is, is a phrase that means, it's a, it's a declaration that Gideon is making that the one who he was talking to was, was the sovereign Jehovah God. God uh, affirms with him, and if you look and continue on, but the Lord said to him, Peace with you, be with you, do not fear, you shall not die. Another confirmation from God, this is what you're supposed to do. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. He used a term that, that uh, is the first time in Scripture we see it, see it it's, it's the words Jehovah Shalom, which mean the Lord our peace. Isn't that amazing? Uh, to see the transformation in Gideon in just a short time. Remember back at the beginning, here he is hiding under the wine press, and God comes and says, you mighty man of valor, and he is, who, me? I'm terrified, God. To this point where he says, you know, the Lord is my peace. There's a calmness there. There's a reassurance there that is incredible. And Gideon needed this personal encounter with God. And God met him. God met Gideon right where he was. He came to Gideon in all his frailties, all his fears, all his inabilities, and, and he gave him this sense of peace and purpose for a promised uh, presence uh, that God had for him. It's important that we notice that. But then what does God say next? Or what, what's the interaction action next? God requires personal faithfulness before there is public Usefulness. I'm not going to read through the whole passage because we're running short on time, but if you, if you read through Judges 6, 25-32, you see in that passage, God tells Gideon, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take uh, your, your, your dad's animals, your dad's bull, and then the other bull, and there's a reference to a second bull, and he goes, I want you to take them, and I want you to offer them on, a, on an altar to God, but, but before you do that, I want you to go and I want you to just destroy the, the altar to Baal. I want you to tear it down, the one in your father's house, and, and just destroy it. And the, the Asherah, which was uh, part of the worship service as well, I want you to, it was made of wood. He said, I want you to cut it down. And then I want you to take the wood that you got from that, and I want you to place it on the altar, and I want you to use that wood to burn your sacrifice to me. The Bible says that Gideon went and he was terrified, and so if you look in, in verse 27, it says, because at the end of the verse, because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. He was still, he was still scared, and he goes and he, and he does uh, what God wants him to do, and the next morning, the, the men of the town wake up, and you can imagine, they're angry. They're angry because their altar's been destroyed. They're angry because this bull was killed, and, and they're angry about, about all this, and they want to know who it is, and, and word spread around town. I think it was Gideon, and so they go to Gideon's dad, and they say, you know, send him out so we can kill him. And Gideon's dad is, uh, gives an interesting phrase. He says uh, to them in that passage, he says, are you pleading for Baal? If you look in verse 31, he says in that passage, um, but Joash said to all them who stood against him, will you contend for Baal or, or will you save him? Whoever contends him for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a God, let him contend for himself because his altar has been broken down. His dad says to him, you know, if, if, 
If he's really God, then let him take care of himself. I think we see already a softening as as Gideon does what God tells him to do, because I think there's a sense in Scripture that God wanted him to take care of his own personal problems privately before he could go out and serve God publicly. And maybe for you that's the case. Maybe the point is is that we need to learn to trust God. We need to learn to do what's right in our own lives, in the lives of our family, before we can be used mightily by God. Private worship prepares us for public power. And for Gideon, that was the case. He had to take care of things in his own home. And, and he did that. And I believe there's a swinging either of, even of his father as he comes and, he, and he, he, he expresses the idea, man, if Baal's really God, he'll take care of himself. Knock down your idols. Confess your sin. Deal with it. And return to full obedience to God. And maybe for some of you here today, the struggle is why you can't fully give in to the service to, the, to God is because there's still sin in your life that is, that is holding you back. Deal with it. Deal with it. Maybe it's a lack of, uh, of faithfulness to God in whatever aspect. Maybe in, in your, your personal time with God. Maybe it's a lack of faith in, in your attendance to church. Maybe, it's, uh, maybe there's un, un, unconfessed sin in your life, wrong thoughts, wrong attitudes, wrong behaviors. Take care of them. For Gideon and his family, it was, it was false worship to other gods. And God requires that personal faithfulness before there's going to be public usefulness. And finally, we'll look at in just the next couple moments, God is patient with our slow process of faith. I'm not going to read it in verses 33 through 35. We see that basically it tells us that it's about to get messy. The Midianites and their partners are all gathering together for their annual raid on the crop. But instead of hiding in a cave as he was in the beginning, the, spirit, the Bible tells us in that passage, if you read it, it says in verse 34 that the Spirit of the Lord clothed or, or surrounded Gideon. Gideon had taken a huge step of faith in his private life. He had taken a huge step of faith in his understanding of what God had for him. And now he's stepping out to work. And the Bible tells us he blew his trumpet. He announced before, remember he was hiding. He didn't want the cattle to be too loud as he was, as he was pressing the, the wheat. And now he's blowing the trumpet and the passage says to call the army together. And we know, and we'll talk about this next week, but uh, the Bible tells us that 32,000 men show up ready to fight because of Gideon's leadership. This guy who said he, didn't, he wasn't able to lead. But I want you to notice that even, even after this incredible encounter with God, even though he had obeyed God in, in clearing out his home, and even though the Holy Spirit was empowering, still Gideon struggled with doubt. And he knows that God has promised to save Israel. He knows God has said to him, you will not die. He knows all that, yet he still is looking in the mirror every morning and he gets up and he looks in the mirror and he goes, that guy can't do this. You know, weakness is normal. I think as Christians, sometimes we struggle and, uh, with thinking, you know what, I don't want to interact with people, I don't want to admit my sin. But that's normal. In fact, that's what God has called us to do. God has called us as a, a body of Christ to interact with each other and share with each other our burdens and our faults and our sins. I stand up here as your pastor, as a weak individual. 
And I stand up here not because I have uh, uh, the power to, to, uh, to do anything other than what God allows me to do. And I think so often as Christians, we are so proud that we're not willing to admit our weaknesses. And here's Gideon coming to God and saying, God, I know you've told me all that, but I still don't think I can do it. And so he creates a test for God, and you've heard this test before, and, and, and we're, we're not going to read the passage, but in verses 36 through 40, he comes to God and he says, God, I'm going to lay a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. We talked about that threshing floor earlier. And he says, when I wake up in the morning, what I would like as a sign from you is that the fleece is wet, but the ground around it is dry. And if you do that, I will know that you are God and that you will save your people. And I love how loving and tender and patient God is. Gideon is making a deal with God. He wants this sign, and, and the Bible says God gives it to him. And as if that is not enough, this doubting Thomas of the Old Testament says, okay, God, I know you, I know you did what I asked you to do, but can you, can you turn it around again? Can you do it a little differently? This time, what I want you to do is I want the fleece to be wet, or excuse me, the fleece to be uh, dry and everything else to be wet. We see that that was the case, and it was, the fleece was dry in the morning. Again, a reminder to God. And for me, this is such a reassuring process because I feel like Gideon sometimes. God says He's with me, and God says He'll work through my life, but yet sometimes I struggle with this, and sometimes I look and say, God, I'm not sure. And I know that if you're here today and you're honest with yourself, you say the same thing. God, I'm not sure that you can use me. Next week, I want to look at the rest of the story of Gideon, but for now, I want to focus on two closing thoughts. First of all, God is patient with his children, but he does expect obedience. God was patient with Gideon. He listened to him. He, he heard his concern, but yet he did expect Gideon to obey. The second thing I want to focus on that I, I want you to think about is God uses individuals who no one else expects, even the individual. You know, and I've seen that before in, in lives of people who I did not expect God to use that person, and they were used greatly by God. I can give examples of people who I went to college with who were kind of the ones that no one thought would accomplish much, and today many of them are doing incredible things for God. And if I mentioned some of their names, you would know them. God has, has done incredible things in lives of people who no one expected to. In, in your life, we can never underestimate God's ability to use us. And many Christians feel they cannot do something, even though God has already equipped you to do it. How about you? Are you giving uh, uh, to God your excuses? What God has, has affirmed in you, but yet you're still not obeying. He wants to use you. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your call in our lives. We thank you for your work in our lives. Lord, I believe so many people here can relate to Gideon. Relate to a man who is weak and broken and fearful, and yet you used him in an incredible way. Lord, he was willing. Lord, maybe there's some in here that aren't willing. I pray you'll work in their heart and convict them. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.